we're flipping the, the script right now. We're flipping the script and starting to see things in a very different way. And it's exhilarating. Hi, Vicki Robin here, host of What Could Possibly Go Right, a project of the Post-Carbon Institute, where we interview cultural scouts, people who see far and serve the common good, asking them all our one big question. Uh, in the midst of all that seems to be going wrong, what could possibly go right? And today, my guest is Juliet Shore. Uh, she's an influential economist, sociologist, and author of five national bestsellers about American work life and spending habits, including The Overworked American, The Overspent American, Born to Buy, Plenitude, and her new book, After the Gig. A member of the Harvard faculty for 17 years, Juliet currently teaches the sociology department of Boston College, and she's also co-chair of the board of the Better Future Project, an organization that works to build a diverse, powerful, and democratic grassroots movement that will drive society to address climate change and its devastating effects, advancing a fair and fast transition beyond coal, oil, and gas, towards an economy powered by renewable energy with equitable benefits for all people. So we'll link you to her bio so you can see her many honors and contributions to social well-being. I just want to say that Julie and I met around the time she wrote a book, The Overspent American, no, The Overworked American. And that was about a year after I um, uh, published Your Money or Your Life. And uh, together we helped to start the Center for New American Dream, uh, which has been going for about, when, about 20 years. And we served on the board for many years, me half a decade and Julie for a lot more. Um, and the center was dedicated to transforming the way Americans think about earning and spend money, more fun, less stuff, um, really trying to, you know, shift consumerism patterns in our country. And, and, and together we've been part of a diffuse and sometimes focused a movement for 25 years. Yeah, I just had to count uh, for 25 years. Um, to address consumerism, resource depletion, climate disruption, and justice through uh, promoting lifestyles built on enoughness rather than more. So it's just such a pleasure for me to, um, after 15 years, I think we haven't seen each other for 15 years, to talk with Julie today about um, what she sees uh, is actually going right in this post-pandemic time. Hey, Julie Shore, thank you so, so much, old friend, for joining me on my podcast, What Could Possibly Go Right? And um, just a few thoughts as, as the tide of the pandemic recedes in the United States, there's three big issues that are being left on the shore, so to speak, and you could call them the basics like health, education, and welfare, as in how do people meet their needs? And you've written for decades about the work and spend hamster wheels, suggesting over and over and over ways we can live better with less distractions, less consumption, less time stinks, less time on the job. And um, so I'm asking people like you, I call cultural scouts, uh, people who see far and serve the common good, what you see bubbling up that could take us in a better direction. Not which what should happen, but what could happen 
because the conditions are ripe and it's already sprouting. And, and before I turn it over to you, I just want to mention two possibilities that are on my mind, which got me to call you. And you can ignore them or you can key off them, whatever you'd like to do. And one is that we seem to have accidentally run a national universal basic income experiment. You know, what happens when people have an income not tied to a job? Um, and is that a thread we can productively pull on, especially as AI absorbs more of the repetitive tasks in society? That's one. And then the second one is that people on the financial independence path, allow your money or life, seem to have found benefit in the pandemic lockdown. They've been reskilling and bonding with family, taking time outdoors, hobbies, you know, I mean, they've been enriching their lives. And they're surprised and they're a little guilty about it. And they're not, they're not all, you know, pure lily white. I mean, there's a lot of diversity in that community. And I'm wondering if just having your money life clarified, even if you're still paying off debt, plus a stimulation check, tells us anything about resetting our norms and expectations and policies about, you know, society-wide, you know, what is this thing called work and money and, and, and making a living or was you used to say making a dime. So there's like so many, so many issues that are up now that we've gone through this like cleansing time. So take it over. What could possibly go right? Yeah, well, that's a great way to start. I mean, I was thinking about three other issues um, that I just want to throw out before I pivot to your questions, which are fabulous questions. And let me just say what a pleasure it is to be here with you. Um, for those who are watching, Vicki and I worked together for many years, beginning in the mid-1990s, and we haven't seen each other in forever, so really nice. Um, so I do think there's a lot that could go right right now. And in fact, I see it going right. And nice. the three big crises, now I just have to say just a little bit about what's going wrong. <laughs> to, <laughs> okay. To okay. Show where, I know I'm not supposed to talk about what's going on. No, to, just <laughs> to show you where I think we're finally getting somewhere in a positive direction. So First, of course, climate and biodiversity and kind of ecological crisis. Second, crisis of extreme inequality and um, income stagnation, middle-class squeeze, et cetera. So kind of the economics. And then third is the democratic deficit, shift toward authoritarianism and so forth. Okay, on all three of these fronts, in the last two years, I would say, you know, slightly different timing for each, but it's been remarkable what's happened uh, from many years of slogging it out in the climate movement in which nothing was happening. We really weren't getting anywhere. And then boom, suddenly we have a real climate movement. It's global. We have the biggest climate strikes in, you know, in history, uh, protests going on, of course, then increasingly each of these protests is you know kind of outnumbered by the next one that comes along so they're getting bigger and more powerful more pervasive um the school strikes sunrise in the united states sunrise the youth movement green new deal we have extinction rebellion a global movement uh, addressing not just climate but but ecological uh collapse more generally fossil fuel companies are on the defensive the International uh, Energy Agency just last week put out a report saying the fossil fuels have to come to an end. I mean, they have been so much the spokesperson for 
this industry continuing forever. I mean, it was just a massive turnaround. It just shows we are winning the climate fight. We're not winning it at the rate we need to. You know, the climate is being destabilized at a faster rate. But finally, we have momentum. We have something real. Um, on inequality and economics, who it's, at, what did I write my notes? An almost shocking transformation. And your point about a, a basic income experiment is a you know, perfect example of how much this discourse has changed. Number one, deficit, deficit constraint is out the window now. Uh, we actually did something that was really humane and really it worked and it was just beautiful. At the beginning of the pandemic, it looked like Europe was going to do so much more than the U.S., but actually in dollar terms, we've done, you know, maybe more than they have. Mm. So, yeah, I'm going to come back to what I think that's done, but absolutely, that's massive. We're talking wealth taxes. We are talking about whole new policies, child care uh, credits for families, uh, extra unemployment insurance, et cetera. So, it's neoliberalism inverted, like it's been flipped on its head. Suddenly, it's all about actually the government can do a lot of good things for the economy. I mean, that's okay, pretty basic stuff. We all know that. Democratic deficit, still massive threats to democracy in this country. But as I mentioned, you know, really uh, year after year, and now highlights being the Women's March right after Trump's inauguration. Uh, the Black Lives, Black Lives Matter protests, you know, one year on, youth activism, uh, all the new candidates for electoral office. There's been an absolute sea change. And what's one of the really important things about this is like suburban women who were not at all political are absolutely activated and they're on fire. So the apathy and the lack of uh, activism that was common in, you know, many parts of our country and many demographics has really transformed. Okay. So yes, COVID has done a lot. It, it has been an, an experiment of people living differently, 15 months of living very differently. And so a couple of things about it. Number one, like uh, when you and I worked together at the Center for a New American Dream, one of our taglines was more of what really matters. So COVID got us down to what really matters. Like at the beginning, it was, well, okay, for most people, toilet paper, right? And food and, you know, some other basics, having a, a house, a roof over your head and utilities, decent water, you know, really back to basics. And not everybody has loved it. You know, there are people who are just dying to get back on the cruise ships or the travel, travel's been a, a tough, tough thing for a lot of people not to travel. But um, I think many, many people, and you referenced the FIRE community, but I think even much more broadly than that, people who got into, of course, cooking. I mean, you you couldn't find a yeast, yeast to save your life or flour. <laughs> you know? So DIY more generally. The other thing is try to get a reservation at a campground. So massive movement to nature and outdoor activities um, and social connection. I just read a, a really heartbreaking post by an economist friend of mine, Indian, who had to rush to India 
to take care of his parents, both of whom got COVID. In the end, they have both survived, thankfully. But you know, his message after discussing this harrowing experience in the Indian hospital and, and so forth was pay attention to your loved ones. You know, every moment is precious. And I, I think there's also that having been deprived of the face-to-face contact with people we care about, recognizing people recognizing how important that is. Um, so basic income. Yes, I do think this is, um, this has been a moment in which the idea that we should just provide some basic supports for people, and it's actually kind of feasible. So we have, you know, more places, uh, cities thinking about doing this. Uh, We have some of the sort of building blocks of a basic income, like the childcare uh, allowance, um, which, you know, we've got a long way to go in this country for, to be able to say, yeah, we're going to provide people with the basics that they need. And we're going to do it through a combination of basic income and also universal basic services. So the idea that the, we're going to provide these certain services to everybody needs to have these things, whether it's healthcare, education, childcare, et cetera. Um, we're far from being there, but we started to take the, the, the steps. And I'll add one more thing, because this is my you know, hobby horse, um, is also how much do we work? You raised uh, artificial intelligence and automation. And I mean, these are developments that are going to make it you know, much, much easier for us to produce with many fewer hours of human labor. And so what do we do with that? Do we sort of keep on that hamster wheel that you mentioned and just try and keep increasing the amount of stuff we produce and so forth? Or, you know, and we can go into a lot of why that model doesn't work, but, or are we going to say, you know what, let's take the four day work week. Um, And that's increasingly a popular idea. I'm involved in a in a pilot in Ireland for a four day week. Uh, the Spanish government is doing. The Scottish government is doing all over the world, and we're going to hear more about it uh, next month. There's going to be a global announcement about places around the world that are starting to look seriously at giving people a schedule of four days with five days pay. So, um, because we can do it, we can. People can be productive, you know, they don't have to lose productivity just because of what's going on in workplaces today around the world. So I'm actually feeling very optimistic about where where we're at. Right. Yeah, it's it's like uh, you and I and so many other people have been pushing against a wall for like 30 years you know, and sort of loyally standing there. We're not even putting a finger in the dike because there's no hole. You know, it's like just loyally standing there saying there is another way to live and um, it'll make more sense in so many ways. Uh, but it wasn't within the mindset of neoliberalism. The one other thing that in your litany that I wanted to say is you were the person who taught me about the idea of public consumption. You know, if we have public schools, then that's off of the personal debit column. Right. If we have public libraries off the personal debit column, you know, the more we have, we, we have systems that are, you know, run by government that 
provide for us when we need it, but we don't have to buy it and store it. You know, it's almost like this whole thrust, you know, it's like the, from the 50s onward, which was sort of almost like industrial policy, wasn't it? It was like, how are we going to get rid of all the stuff that we can now produce because we've like ramped things up? So we got to teach people to want what they don't need. This whole process of man's home is his castle, you know, close the door, get as much crap as you can, excuse the expression, inside the door and then close it. That model, is that model weakened now? I mean, in our minds, we are still so individualistic, but in practicality, is what are the shifts you're seeing? Is that like model weakening? And is there a more, you know, whether you call it socialism or, uh, you know, cooperative, cooperative structures, is that on the ascendancy? And if so, how can, you know, us ordinary people out here, you know, where can we plug in to like, like, stand on that side of the boat so it, the boat writes, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it absolutely is on the ascendancy. So if you think about the post-war era, it was the era of, you know, what I would call the depoliticization of consumption. So it was that, and that depoliticization was also individualization. This idea that uh, consumption is an individual thing. So minimize what the government provides um, take away all kind of value judgments and ethics and morality from consumption, right? Don't, you can't question what another person wants. That's all individual. Man's home is his castle. Of course, a very patriarchal era as well, particularly yeah. the early post-war period. Um, and when you got to, by the time we get to the quote unquote neoliberal era, which begins roughly 1980, it's the systematic destruction of the public provision of services. And so it's the attempt to privatize everything, hollow them out. So where we see, whether it's the hollowed out public health system that we see with the pandemic or the destruction of the unemployment, just even the basic provisioning of unemployment insurance and, you know, kind of, I mean, that was the rights program all along is to, privatize where they could and destroy public services because they want to destroy government. You know, Grover Northquist's famous thing, like drink it so much you can get it down the, down the drain in the bathtub. So um, that's all to- lost credibility. I mean, and you notice the GOP, I mean, they're fighting everything we're trying to do, but they, they don't have an alternative. They can't speak for their, you know, it, it's not as if they, they have, uh, they're willing to stand up for their idea anymore because it's 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 completely lost legitimacy. So yes, and I think for us now, some of the big questions are what is the scale of provisioning? So we're, if we're if we're in a more collective, cooperative, commons kind of era, is it you know what do we need at the federal level? What do we need at the state? What do we need at the local level? Because a lot of this provisioning can be done at a local level where you have smaller scale and more democratic control over it, whether we're talking about municipal utilities or we're talking about, you know, either state or, or some smaller entities, bank, public banking, or we're talking about, uh, you know, a healthcare system. Yeah, I think we need 
you know, kind of the flows of money need to happen at the federal level, but we need a lot more control at the local level, um, subject to, you know, issues around racial justice and some of the other uh, dimensions of our country, aspects of our history that have made local control problematic, you know, and part of why progressives went for national level policies because we saw what was happening at the local level. So you have to solve that, but it's also the case that it doesn't mean that the federal government is providing everything. If you start to talk about things like universal basic services, for example, a lot of this can be done, I think, really well at a municipal level or at a county level if we're talking about more rural, you know, less urban entities. Areas. It's like a it's like all the parts and pieces are have at least started to move, or at least they're unglued. That's what I'm feeling from what you're saying. The parts and pieces are unstuck from one another. The the ossification, you know, all that, you know. <laughs> so now they're moving, but it's like it's it's a very complex puzzle to to see, you know. And I don't think anybody's going to get on top of this movement and direct it. You know. It's more like, as I, as I think I used the metaphor earlier, it's more like when you're sailing, you know, and it's healing over in one direction, you have to lean over in the other, or you're going to capsize. It's more like moving in different directions. And if you, if you had to like emphasize or sequence the kinds of things that in the near future, if we stand on this place on the deck, we're actually going to, we're actually going to stabilize the kinds of changes you're talking about. And that's the first thing we need to do. So that's going to be the basis for the next. I'm not asking you for a whole big program. I'm just saying, you know, yeah. in your instinct, where is it that we, we cooperate with reality? Well, I go back to those three things I started with. So on the one hand, we're not going to get anything unless we, we can maintain and actually expand uh, basic rules of democracy because we have a plutocratic class and the, as well as a, you know, a, a white supremacist movement that is, is trying to enact, you know, very non-democratic, very uh, um, uh, kind of concentrated power, authoritarian, et cetera, outcomes. So the things that you and I, and probably, you know, almost all the people watching this care about are not things that those people actually are, you know, have any interest in and, and, you know, they're, they're actively fighting against them. So we've got to, we've got to maintain some level of democracy. So that has to do with the rules of the game, uh, the rules of the political game, very key. Second thing, there are certain variable, if you think about our economy and society as a system, and it is a system, it's an interlocking system. So in that sense, like, you know, almost anything you do can have impacts in other places right, and there right. isn't just one place to intervene and so forth. But there are certain things that if you change them, they have really profound kind of ripple effects through the system. And um, the degree of income and wealth inequality is one of those things. It's connected to so many other things. I mean, I've done research on how it's connected to carbon emissions, for example, if you have a more concentrated 
income and wealth at the top of the distribution, you have more carbon emissions. Uh, you know, we don't exactly know why, it probably has to do with political power. It has to do with the emissions of the people at the very top. They're massive emitters. Um, but we know it has impacts on health. We know it has impacts on, on consumption, you know, all kinds of things. So that's a key variable. So doing something about that. And then obviously on climate, we've, we've got to address energy, energy use and connected to that agriculture as well and land use, but, you know, first fossil fuels and get off fossil fuels. So those are, those are the key things. You know, I, I'm a little bit uh, coming out of having been trained as an economist, but then someone who moved over much more into studying culture. Um, I believe both are important, but if you ask, if you ask me as you did, like, you know, you're on the boat, it's going one direction. What, you know, what do you need to do to move it in the other direction? I'd say I go for the economic variables first uh, because I think the culture will, the culture will move with it. I mean, not in an automatic way, but, it, I think we'll have a better chance than than sort of doing something first that's just cultural and hoping that the economics will move along with that. So those are those are key issues. And then, of course, I always care about time use and working hours because I think that has just really big uh, impacts, daily life impacts that affect how people how people act and live and so forth. Yeah. So just one one last zeroing in since. We're gonna like boom, boom, boom. We're gonna handle this wealth gap. Um, so, so where is a where is a pressure point on that? Is it is it Elizabeth Warren's just two cents? Is it, you know, is it is it is it delegitimizing extreme wealth? Is it you know working? Yeah. So like, where where are we gonna stand on on the deck of the boat on this one to like get it to move? Well, it's an interesting question. I do think we need a wealth tax. That in itself is not going to do it because these people have amassed so much wealth. Uh, you know, the degree of inequality that's developed is so extreme. I, I lived in the Netherlands for a couple of years in the 90s. They had a wealth tax, a much more equal society than ours, but, you know, it didn't, didn't change everything. Um, one of the people I, I really respect a lot in the world, Yochai Bankler, uh, uh, a scholar at Harvard and in, in Harvard Law has written about how how this sort of the winter markets developed, superstar markets developed in many industries that led to uh, much more extreme concentrations of wealth. You know, why does the CEO pay exploded or, you know, uh, people in finance, why their pay exploded and so forth. And it is true I think that the story of norm, the norms changing was really important. So that is, you asked the question, delegitimizing extreme wealth. What happened was the reverse where you had the legitimation of this. Um, so we've got to change the way those markets work. And I'm not sure we know yet how to do that. I mean, there are proposals for maximum wages that worker power could help because if workers claim more, then there's less for management. I mean, that part of the reason management was able to do this and take such a you know increasing fraction is because worker power was so 
uh, undermined. Um, I mean, and that's where something like the universal basic income and universal basic services really can do a lot because they, by putting that floor under where wages can, how far they can fall and giving people a viable alternative to a crappy job, that it, that's massive. I mean, I started my career in economics, th think writing and thinking about that. And I showed that when people had less cost of losing their job, when there was more unemployment insurance or unemployment was lower, they went on strike much more, their wages were higher. It affected how hard they worked. You know, they could work less if they didn't have so much fear of losing their job. So, you know, in some sense, that's another one of those variables. We call it the cost of job loss in, mm -hmm. uh, in the economy that, that um, has a profound effect on all kinds of things because by giving, and that's what fire's about, right? It right. gives people an out. It gives people an out and gives them much more control in their, even if they, you know, pre-retirement, uh, gives them a lot more control in, in their jobs and so forth. So um, that was a long-winded, in a way, non-answer because I'm not sure we know exactly how to do it, but you know, maybe raising the cost of jobless, maybe we're back to UBI and universal basic services, and that's the way to close the wealth gap. I think it would, I think that would do a lot. Yeah. I well it's it's um it's really, I agree with you. It's really exciting to see how much is in play and how um, people are sort of blinking and going like, really, could we have this? You know, I mean, there's a sort of uh, like a, a, um, a um, guarded optimism that there could be something good coming out of this. And I think, you know, our job today was just simply to name it, you know? Yeah. Just to name it, and yeah, go ahead. I, I want to give an example from my husband, my my husband's research about how just framing how how a situation can the same kind of situation can look be so different in different contexts. So he studied weavers in pre-colonial South India, and the way the system worked was they would get money from merchants. They would take money from merchants to buy the uh, threads and they'd weave and then they'd, uh, the merchants would get the cloth afterwards. So the merchants front advance the money. And so you could think of that as the, the weavers were borrowing the money from the merchants. Now in our world, when you borrow money as a debtor, all the jeopardy is on you and not just all the bad things are gonna happen to you if you can't pay it back, but also, all the moral opprobrium that the right has has placed on people who owe money that they can't pay back. I mean, we saw that in full force with the the um, the financial crash ten years ago. But in his in his uh, at, at that time in India, it was the merchants who were who held the bag, and it was a complete reversal. Once they gave the money. They, maybe they got it back, maybe they didn't. And the law was on the side of the weavers, not on the side mm -hmm. of the merchants. I mean, our law is so much, of course, Elizabeth Warren's you know, worked a lot on this, but our law is so much on the side of the, the, the loner and not the uh, loanee. Yeah, the borrower. 
the lender and the borrowers. So it's it, it's an example of how you can really flip an economic relationship based on the institutional, the historical, the cultural, the context, like who should suffer when somebody can't pay something back? I mean, in the U.S. case, it was through no fault of their own in many cases, you know, the market collapse. Um, but uh, it's just, we're flipping the, the script right now. We're flipping the script and starting to see things in a very different way. And it's, it's um, exhilarating. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much, Julie. What a great conversation. Yeah, thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review so that this hopeful message can get out to more people. Check out Post Carbon Institute's Resilience website for show notes and for more guest information. Join us on Patreon and become a financial supporter of the show and for exclusive content and special online events. Thanks also to Asher Miller, Amy Burringrood, and Clara Winter of Post Carbon Institute, plus production assistant Michelle Wig from frugalityandfreedom.com.